Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Young adult writer Michael Grant grew up in a military family and has published three series of books, including the dystopian Gone, the multi-platform Berserk, and his new Frontlines trilogy, set in World War II and imagining girl soldiers on the front lines. He creates worlds where adults go AWOL to be replaced by horror of all kinds. Listen to this master storyteller talk about his craft and what makes for great fiction with Jane Higgins in a session supported by the Embassy of the United States of America. I'm Jane Higgins and this is Frontlines, a conversation with Michael Grant. Michael is a New York Times best-selling author. He's written about more than 150 books, including the much-loved Animorph series with his wife, Catherine Applegate, and in his own right, the phenomenally successful Gone series, as well as a host of other books too numerous to list here. He's here with a new book, Frontlines, that reimagines the Second World War. For those of you who know and love his books, he needs no introduction, but for those of you who are new to his writing, Let me just mention what some reviewers have said. Stephen King called the Gone series a driving, torrential narrative, and a Guardian review described it as fast-paced and frighteningly gripping. It will not fail to delight many readers, ranging from fans of The Hunger Games to hardcore Stephen King admirers. The School Library Journal in the US called Berserk science fiction at its best. As a thriller, it does indeed thrill, It also, however, poses serious questions that will provide thought for good discussions regarding science and ethics and free will. And the new book, Frontlines, has been described by reviewers as fresh, new and exciting, a beautiful and compelling read, not just about war, but about the power of friendship, and fantastically believable and relatable. So, make no mistake, this is some powerful writing. We're very grateful to the Embassy of the United States for supporting Michael's visit here. Please join me in welcoming Michael Grant. I'm just going to play a quick uh, the book trailer for the thing, and then we'll talk, and then we'll do questions at the end. So hang in there. My name is, well, not important, really. I'm just a shy-eyed soldier girl sitting in a hospital, and I have a story to tell. None of us really wanted to go to war. Rio Ricklin lost her sister and fell swept up. Frangie Mara just needed the paycheck to help her family. Rainy Schultz, well, she actually hated Nazis. For the first time in American history, women and girls were marched to war. We trained alongside men. We marched and we dug holes and we fainted from heat stroke and lost our toes to frostbite. We were GIs, not heroes. Just lost, dirty, forgotten, scared GIs, caught up in the middle of the biggest war the human race has ever known. And we killed. We aimed our rifles. We threw our grenades. And we stole men's lives.
So tell us about Frontlines. How did you come to write it? Um, <clears throat> well, I never subscribe. I wrote something about this the other day. I never subscribe to single motives. There's always layers of motives. People always like to reduce something to a binary, say, why did you do it? And then I'm, you know, I should have a facile answer, and I just don't. The truth is um, there were multiple things involved. Partly it's marketing. Um, I was looking at it and, uh, at the industry and thinking uh, that uh, we we're all kind of getting tired of dystopia stuff. Um, but there's a market for strong um, female action heroes, and I wanted to find ways to continue to do that that did not involve rewiring the world in such a way that a girl with a bow and arrow can save the world. Um, so I wanted to do something different. I wanted to find a, and at the same time, I care about history, which is odd, perhaps because I'm a high school dropout uh, and uh, from a country that's uh, typically indifferent to uh, history or learning anything from it anyway. And um, I, but I, I like it uh, just because it's, it's neat. It's a cool way to understand the world and um, I always explain to kids that uh, the reason you care about history is because if you don't know anything about it, it it's like walking in the last minute of the uh, you know, Captain America uh, movie that's out and you're looking at it going, why the hell are Iron Man and Captain America fighting? I don't get this. Well, you, you need the backstory. You need everything that happened up to then. And history is the backstory of the human race. But it's also uh, this place where you find so much story just like cool, strange stuff that you can't really just make up, you know, that, that history gives you. Um, so all of that, and I thought it would, and always with me, the, the final question is, am I going to have fun? Will this be fun doing this? And I thought, yeah, it'll be fun. So that, that was why. <laughs> Can you give us, a, for people who haven't read the book, just give us a bit of an idea of what the story is without spoilers. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, well, uh, spoiler alert, the Nazis lose. Um, <laughs> just go ahead and tell you that up front. I don't want to surprise you. I'm, it's not alternate history in the sense that I intend to change the narrative, rather the contrary. Uh, I'm making two big changes. The, the big change is that I've uh, invented a Supreme Court decision which uh, makes women subject to the draft and eligible for enlistment and service in all aspects of the military. So because I'm a fiction writer and we're allowed to write our own Supreme Court decisions whenever the hell we want. Um, so that was the big change. And the, uh, the only other change that's uh, of any serious nature is I advance the involvement of uh, black you know, African-American troops, combat troops, earlier in the war. They were not uh, put into the front lines until 1944 in the actual war. And in mine, uh, I need them to be in earlier, so they are. But aside from that, I've really strained uh, to the limits of my uh, powers, such as they are, to get everything right. Um, I've been in a cringe since it came out, waiting for people, waiting for the history nerds to get a hold of me. And I'm just like, oh, God, did I screw up? So far, I've only heard one thing. This one guy said, um, you made one reference to boot camp. That's the Marines. If it's Army, it's uh, basic training. And I said, I, yeah, I know. I just messed that up. That's, that's it, as far as I know. I'm sure there's other stuff that I've messed up, but I've tried really hard to be as accurate as I can be. Yeah, yeah. So the whole research process of trying to get the research right, clearly there's a, a heap of stuff that you need to kind of come to grips with. What happens in the camp training, how the raw recruits are taught to fire a rifle, 
Do you have a pl did you have a plan for the research? Oh no, I've never had a plan for anything. <laughs> um, everything I do is improv. So um, I kind of knew the way, it's three books, so I, I kind of knew the layout in historical terms. I knew we were gonna go from recruitment to training to uh, through the uh, fight in North Africa. And then book two, which I've already written, but which isn't out yet, goes from uh, Sicily and Italy. And then book three uh, will be from D-Day through the liberation of the camps and probably some aftermath. Um, but no, I, I, I didn't plan anything. So uh, mostly, I, this all started, and I want to give credit to uh, Rick Atkinson. It's a, he wrote uh, something called Liberation Trilogy, which is a history of World War II in the European theater from the US perspective. As you may know, our World War II was somewhat shorter than other people's World War II. <laughs> because we got in late when it was still possible to make some money off it. Um, just kidding. Just, um, just joking. Um, no, I, so I, I thought, well, I, I, I think the extent, oh, okay, so I was saying, so my father-in-law of all people said, you gotta read these books. And I went, oh, Jesus, really? Another World War II book? But I thought out of deference to him, because I like him, I'd read it, and about halfway through the first book, I was just thinking, damn, this is story, man. This is great. What, what neat stuff. Uh, and I want to write about this. Uh, so I did. Um, but that was, that was the beginning of the research. I, I, I knew enough, you know, I kind of had the framework of the war, so I know, you know who's more or less doing what to whom at what point, um, just because I, I have read many books on the subject. But, so I had to get a bunch of more books, and I went to museums. I went to the Imperial War Museum in London. I went to um, down in the south of England to uh, walk around the inside of a submarine. I went to, um, I even went to Las Vegas um, because in Las Vegas they've got, you can shoot guns. Um, and uh, there's one place where they have a special package of, uh, they call it the Private Ryan package. So they'll let you shoot, in, they'll let you shoot an M1, a BAR, a Thompson submachine gun, an M1 carbine, um, and a 45 uh, pistol. So that was interesting, because I'd never fired an automatic weapon before. I want to hasten to add that unlike many people in my country, I don't approve of guns. I don't have them in the house. I used to when I was much younger, but uh, not since I almost killed several family members by accident. I thought that was a good time to stop, because I <laughs> blew a hole in the floor with my uncle, my girlfriend, and my sister just like right across the room for me. And of course I came out and go, hey, I bought this gun. No, it's unloaded, boom. Um, the guy downstairs didn't appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny, because uh, we looked at him, well, there's a hole in the floor. You think that went through? Nah, that didn't go through. So we go down to knock on the dude's door and he's not home. So the next day he comes up to us and goes, I just got home. Uh, did something happen last night up here? I was like, uh, yeah, we, uh, oh, we accidentally set off a firecracker. And he looks at me and my uncle, my friend, his uncle as well, goes, oh, <laughs> shit. And we walk downstairs. Sure enough, big hole in his ceiling. So we go, yeah, we'll fix that. Um, how, but, uh, how old were you when that happened? Uh, probably 19 or 20, something like that. And I, I had the gun. God, we're getting way off subject here. But I had the gun because there was this guy who wanted to kill me. Um, I was, I've had a very strange background. But in any case... It was a guy who, uh, this is totally off topic, he wanted to kill me, he came and beat in my door one night, and in the process of coming to beat me to death, or whatever he thought he was doing, um, he managed to ram his hand through a plate glass window, cut an artery, blood spraying everywhere, 
And we're all at the hospital, and as he's lying there thinking he's dying, <clears throat> he starts spilling his guts to me, and I'm like, oh, Jesus, I'm going to have to buy a gun because as soon as he sobers up after this, he's coming for me. <laughs> so uh, that's why I had the gun, but I, like I said, I eventually got rid of it and uh, traded it to a guy for a 35-millimeter camera. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, getting back to the research. Yeah. <laughs> the, the research seems to me to be there's a lot more in here than you would get from going to a museum. So, uh, I mean, obviously that's important, but you've got all the research about, or all the details about what happens in basic training and what fills up Rio's pack and all that kind of thing. How do you get that minutiae? Um, well, uh, the big source is, well, the first course books, obviously. Um, YouTube is amazing source. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. There's a piece in the first book where um, they're being instructed in the uh, aiming of an M1 rifle and, uh, you know, windage and elevation. And it's mm -hmm. taken almost verbatim from a 1942 U.S. Army training film, which is on YouTube. So I thought, this is great. It's just, you, you go there and you can find so much stuff, there's so much footage. Um, then just pictures, you go through pictures, um, Wikipedia, obviously, uh, for, for a quick check on stuff. There's millions of sites. I, this would have been a hundred times harder in the days before the internet. Mm. I mean, this is just amazing. I, God, I wish we'd had this. Uh, wish we'd had the internet during uh, Animorphs, because we used to have like a thousand animal books, and now you just go online and go, oh, "That's what it looks like." Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a heap about how you fire a rifle. I just assumed you point and shoot, but no, 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 elevation no, because uh, a bullet, you know, bullet goes in an arc, comes out of the gun, going up, yeah. and it has to drop toward the target. That guy right there. Um, so you, if you just aim straight, it's, it's dropping toward the ground, so you have to end, and there's windage, which means that the wind is pushing the bullet, so you compensate for it with your sights and uh, do it that way. Yeah. Windage yeah. and elevation, baby, yeah. <laughs> there's also in here the physical and psychological reality. So, for example, when Rio's about to go into action for the first time, she's just a young woman, she's done her basic training, but there's a line that says she hasn't, and she's about to get off a boat, there's a line that says she hasn't even started and she's already exhausted. And I thought, that never occurred to me, that people would be exhausted before they even began. Oh, a lot of this is, you know, you pick it up from first-person narratives, which are not as um, useful as I'd like them to be because in a perfect world, we would only send poets and reporters and writers to war because then they would give me great description. And instead, it's, you know, you get stuff like, yeah, so I sat in a hold and it was really cold. <laughs> Excellent. Um, that's really helpful. Um, mostly, though, it's just imagination. You know, if you're, you're making up characters and so you walk them through, it's not, at that level, it's not in any real way different from Gone or anything else I've written because it's still made up people doing stuff that I'm causing them to do. And then you just kind of get into that frame of mind and you ask yourself, how would I feel, you know, if it was me? Well, I would have, of course, tried really hard to get a deferment um, <laughs> and stay the hell out. But um, if you were braver than me and you actually went to the war, um, that's, it's kind of you just put yourself into that position and think, by the time they're landing on a beach, they're usually they've been... Uh, so, for example, I haven't written the D-Day scene yet, but those guys had already been on boats for the better part of a day in the middle of the English Channel, in the middle of a, essentially a storm. They were... The decks were awash with vomit. Uh, just people, it was just a horrible situation. So they were drained by that. I don't know if you've ever been seasick. 
um, seriously seasick over the course of hours, but Jesus, you know, to, to be that sick and then have 50 or 60 or 70 pounds of gear on your back and go rushing off a boat into the water. And if you've ever just, you know, just, you notice how exhausting it is just getting out of the water sometimes if you're at the beach, you've been swimming, that climb back up the beach, you feel like everything's made out of lead. Um, well, it's like that, but more, because frankly, you're carrying the weight of another person more or less with you and you're trying to keep your gun high and dry and people are shooting at you. So yeah, you're, you're tired a lot, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also a great line about the culture uh, of the military, including what you call the fine art of military grumbling. Um, well, I grew up in a military family. My dad is a, a, a lifer, a 20-year man in the U.S. Army. Um, so I kind of, I grew up around soldiers and on Army posts and Army bases, Air Force bases at different times. And um, yeah, there's constant complaint, but actually that was just, that was more me thinking about so many jobs I've had. I waited tables for 10 years, and um, at the end of every shift, we'd get together and just bitch, just unmercifully. You know, we'd tear up the customers, we'd tear up the waiter who didn't do something, the busboy, the bartender, the cucks, just, you know, just piling on the hate. And it was like, you know, a half an hour, just kind of got it all out of your system, you felt better. Um, you know, when you were all done, just because you'd, you'd had a complaint, you got it out of your system. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that things go wrong, and you've got those terms FUBAR and SNAFU, which you might mm -hmm. like to explain to people. Um, yeah, FUBAR is, uh, we're going to keep this clean, it's an acronym. Uh, the F is exactly what you think it is, beyond all recognition. F'd up, beyond all recognition is FUBAR. So if things were going... Bad, it would be, um, how'd it go yesterday? Oh, foobar. Uh, or the other one is uh, the, um, how's that operation look? Snafu. Situation normal. All effed up. Um, and it's funny because from movies, you know, from the movies of the era and all through the 40s, 50s, and into the 60s, there was this idea that uh, the greatest generation just, you know, were um, guys who, uh, you know, just said, gosh darn it. No. <laughs> You see account after account where the, the F-bomb is pretty much every third word <coughs> in people's uh, conversation. There are, of course, people who weren't that way. There are people, you know, more religious people, more restrained people, more mature people. But, you know, you take a bunch of 19 and 20-year-old 20 kids and pull them out of their lives and out of their farms and throw them in a miserable, horrible situation. Yeah, they're not really watching their language uh, so much. <laughs> and so. it's also a way for them to lighten... What's going on for them? Well, you have to. When things are going, when you're in real danger um, and when things are really hard, I think you need a sense of humor. It's, mm -hmm. um, yeah, goes with the territory. There are people cracking jokes in Auschwitz. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's the alternative? Yeah. When things do go foobar and snafu, you don't shy away from the really visceral reality and that it's brutal and that it's dangerous. How is it to write that? Uh, well, I've been writing um, action for a long time. Um, even going back to uh, going back to Animorphs is kind of where we developed this. Uh, my wife and I were writing at that time, and that was middle grade, so that was younger. But we thought, um, I, I don't like comic book violence. I don't like the idea that you punch somebody and he gets back up and shakes it off. That's not the way it is. You hear bones cracking. You hear things protruding from skin. People, pain is real and terrible, and it's terrifying, and that's what I want to portray, because I think it's a, I think it's a disservice to suggest 
that you can go around committing violent acts and that this doesn't, um, that it's somehow still in normal reality, that things are still fine. I like to show the results. I like to show the reaction. So like in the book trailer, I wrote the book trailer. I put in the line about, you know, taking men's lives, making widows of their, uh, making widows and orphans. It's, it's what you do. That's your job. And you'll see account after account, interestingly enough, of um, uh, sergeants, officers, soldiers, people who were involved in the training, all agreeing essentially that however you come into it, however indifferent you are to the enemy at that point, and the Americans, we had no particular beef with the Germans. Our problem was with the Japanese. They were the ones we really hated. But people pointing out that if you're gonna be a good soldier, a frontline soldier, a combat soldier, you do at some point have to hate the enemy because you're going to shoot them. You're going to kill them. You're going to take everything they've got. And that doesn't, that's not coming from a place of love or even mild intolerance or irritation. Sooner or later, you have to hate them, which is kind of a disturbing thing to recognize, but it's kind of obvious when you think about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you've got three young women who've, and they're very, they're not modern young women. They're very grown up in the kind of, 30s and they have that kind of culture and sensibility and you've got them not drafted but actually enlisting. As it happens, yeah, they all, they all enlist. I thought about using a, a draftee and I'm going to in the next book um, but it just didn't work with these particular three characters for some reason. I wanted them all to be uh, enlisted. So they've chosen but for various different reasons. Rio, who is sort of the main character I suppose of the three, um, Enlist for exactly the reason that I heard in first-person narrative one after another. I was swept up. I was caught up. It seemed like I had to do it. It seemed like I had something that needed to be done. There was a sense of duty, but also there's just a sense that it's, the course of history has dragged me along and I'm off to war. So very few people, I mean, immediately after Pearl Harbor, a lot of people enlisted because, you know, they wanted to go kill Japs and get revenge. But that kind of thing dies off pretty quickly. And then you, um, then it's just more a sense of obligation. My friends are doing it. Uh, another character, Frangie, her father has been injured at work. Um, she needs a paycheck. So she joins to get a paycheck. And then uh, the one character, Rainey, is the one who's uh, the Jewish girl from New York. And so much more hip to what's going on, much more clued into the politics, more aware of what's going on. Uh, so she enlists or out of... Uh, so like I said, like she wants to kill Nazis. Mm -hmm. yeah. They have really distinctive voices. What, how, did, how do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's the oddest thing. Um, because people say that about my stuff, and then I go, huh, I wonder how I did that. Um, I don't know. I don't have friends. I'm like the most antisocial person in the world. I literally have zero friends aside from my wife. Um, I don't hang out with people. I don't go sit in bars with my buddies and watch sports. I don't watch sports. I don't do all those kinds of things. And um, my wife is also surprised. She's a very better writer than I am, a very good writer. Um, and she's surprised. She's like, I have no idea how you do that because you don't even like people. <laughs> I, go, I don't know. Um, I think maybe it's because um, I've always been... Uh, I'm, it sounds, I don't know, self-aggrandizing or something, but I'm classic loner type, always that guy who doesn't fit in, who isn't part of something. As a matter of fact, whenever you say the word, are you part of this, I immediately bridle and go, no, I'm not part of anything. Uh, don't make me part. 
Um, I'm 100% of me, but I'm 100% of me standing off at a distance because I've had this odd life where I've actually lived in more homes and more houses, or as many houses as I've been alive years, which is 61. So that's, I've moved a lot. Uh, I went to 14 different schools, I think, before I finally dropped out of 10th grade. Uh, I went to uh, college for like I don't know, a month, let's say. Uh, it's hard to remember because I was high the whole time. Um, and then, so I've always been kind of not, I've had hundreds, God knows how many jobs I've had, how many different careers I've had. So I think because I'm so deeply apart and, and, and odd, that it gives me an ability to look at people from the outside and understand them more or less as, uh, I don't know, like a scientist looking at amoeba or something. I don't know. Just, so that's so, a weak explanation. Isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it works. Do those characters come to you fully formed, or do you discover them as you write them? No. Um, the, way I, the way I do it, because I generally write series, um, the first thing I do before anything else, the first, well, first of all, I come up with a concept. So I have an idea. Uh, okay, girls in World War II. And then I start building what I call a series Bible, uh, which is a compilation. I'll have a, uh, my uh, catchphrase, you know, a little an elevator pitch, essentially, a, a distillation of what the series is. Then I'll have a longer bit about it. I'll talk about the psychology of it. I'll start creating characters. Uh, and I'll start with positional characters. So I know I need a hero. I need somebody for the hero to talk to. You know, there's two people. I need somebody else. I need an opposition. Here's this guy. So I'll start positioning people like that, but at this point, they're just slots, essentially. And then I go online a lot of times, and I start looking at, uh, I pull headshots of people who look like they might be kind of like somebody I might be interested in. So I'll just go Google, um, you know, teenage girl headshot. And let me just point out, put on safe search first, <laughs> because the first two billion shots are not what you're looking for. <laughs> Um, so you put on the safe search, and then I'll, just, I'll sit there and just throw them on my desktop off the internet after a while. And sometimes I find a whole new character that way, because I'll just come across a picture. Uh, for example, in Gone, there's a character named Decca who became popular. Decca was a picture. She wasn't a... I just looked at the picture, and I thought, I don't know who you are, but you're hired. Uh, <laughs> you're working for me, baby. Um, so I'll do that, and then, and then I start to build them out, and I start to think about them, and I write descriptors of them. I want to know everything about them. I want to know uh, what's on the, the walls of their bedroom. I want to know where they buy their clothes. Uh, I want to know what kind of music they listen to. I want to know um, what they think about things, what they feel about things, their relationships, what they care about, how they get along with their father, their mother, their friends, etc. And all this begins to add up. But the series Bible, in addition, is a clarifying thing for me. It clarifies my thoughts and you know, gets me focused. And uh, it's also a sales tool because this is what I then give to my editor and say, here is my concept, give me some money. Um, and then, uh, so that's, this ends up being like 20, 30 pages of that. And so there'll be a lot of the, the pictures of the people and then uh, that. So, um, yeah, that's, and then, but then in the writing, then they get, then they start taking on weight. And at the beginning of any book, and, and I want to say this for all the aspiring writers out there, so I have, at more than 150 times in my life, sat down at a keyboard and looked at an empty page in the old days, or an empty screen, and come away with a book. You would think, by now, I would be totally confident. No. Every single book, I sit there and go, I don't know how to do this. I'm an idiot. People are going to realize it. 
I will be unmasked as a terrible fraud. So you kind of build yourself into it. And then at some point, they start taking on weight. They take, they take on reality. You hear them in your head. You hear their voice. Um, and then, you know, then, you, then you're done with the book, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah. And when you take those characters out of your head and put them in real situations, which is what you've done in front lines. Is that a different writing experience than when you're writing Gone and you're making up the world yourself? No, um, it's different in terms of plot. Uh, so for example, in, in Gone, where I've created the universe, the object is then to have the story play out within rules that I've invented. But I have to be completely consistent within those rules. In this case, I'm just handed a different set of rules. And in this case, you know, the rules are, it's 1942, and this has happened, and that's happened, and you can do this, and nobody's got a cell phone, uh, nobody's got the internet. Um, women are, uh, tend to be uh, more deferential to men. Men tend to be pretty much what we are now, dicks. But, um, <laughs> no, sorry. That was, um, so yeah, it, it's still the same thing. You're still playing within this set of rules, it's just that the set of rules is imposed more from the outside. Mm, mm. Than, than something I've created from scratch. So in something like the Battle of Kazarin Pass, mm -hmm. which is a battle that appears in this book, did you know a lot about that battle, or are there no, sort of parameters I, I, and I you filled it, them in? I knew that it had happened, so of course I, I read about it, and then uh, most of the scenes are not, uh, you know, the individual firefights, there I've got a lot of poetic license, because within any battle, you know, you talk about a battle, well, the GI, the average man or woman holding a gun, walking around, freezing their ass off, you know, exhausted, schlepping gear, has no idea what's going on. They have no idea. They, they're like, we're in a war. <laughs> they're calling it World War II. And I think we're in North Africa. So I've got the characters the whole, throughout um, North Africa thinking they're going to see lions. Yeah. They think they're in the jungle. They don't know. And then suddenly they're in the desert. And worst of all, it's freezing in the desert. So it's, it's all terribly confusing to them. But they have no overview. They don't know that they're part of something. They don't know this is the Battle of Kasserine Pass. They just know the sergeant said, go that way. So they went that way. And the sergeant says, lie down. So they lie down. Dig a hole. Okay, we dig a hole. That's the GI's perspective. And the, the trick for me was um, because it just, this story, is, I mean, it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like a fire hose in your face of story, of possibilities. It keeps wanting to get bigger. And I keep trying to hone it down because I want to keep it down to the GI's experience as a soldier. So all the way through the first book, they're just, they're privates. You know, they start off as, uh, I think uh, they make PFC. Uh, and then in book two, uh, they become sergeants. But, um, you know, we're, we're following that path. And then when you're a sergeant, you know a little bit more. Then, they, then you get to go to the briefing. You see the sand table that they've set up, you know, showing you where you're going to land, you know. But when you're just a grunt, all you know is, okay, time to get on the boat, time to get off the boat. <laughs> you know, that's pretty much your perspective. Yeah, yeah. The dedication in the book mm -hmm. is quite a special dedication. Perhaps you'd explain what it I is. I dedicated to the uh, Kurdish women in Kobani, who were, um, I think... Amazing exemplars of women fighting war. They're fighting people every bit as bad. This is in the Battle of Kobani. I don't know if you, how much you guys followed it, but for us, since of course we're there, um, it was a big thing uh, right on the Turkish border. There's a town of Kobani, which is um, a Kurdish village, and uh, ISIS was attacking them, and Turkey wasn't helping. 
and they were man up against a wall. It was bad. It was a bad, bad fight. <clears throat> and the Kurdish uh, Peshmerga um, used women soldiers, and they were incredible. And they won the bet. So I, yeah, they did. They won, and uh, so I dedicated the book to them. That was what was going on in the news as I was writing the book, and I felt like, yeah, that's that's the right dedication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in book two, by the way, it's dedicated to the. Uh, first um, American female soldiers to get through ranger training. And uh, ranger training, by the way, is about as close to hell as you're going to get uh, in terms of training. That's the kind of thing where they say, you know, we're going to drop you in the middle of the swamp and we're going to give you a match. See if you can get back in about 30 days. It's, <laughs> it's that kind of a deal. So uh, they got through ranger training, and so the second book's dedicated to them. I don't know about book three yet. I'll think about that. How many books? Just three. Um, I'm a little concerned because book three is, again, one of these ones wants to get big. So book two goes from uh, Sicily through Italy. Uh, so you've got the battle of the invasion of Sicily, you've got the battle of uh, Monte Cassino, uh, the landing at Salerno, um, the Rapidan, the, the river crossing. It's just some gruesome stuff. And it's particularly horrible because the entire thing turns out to be a, an enormous waste of time. Pretty much all those people died for no good reason. Um, there was the entire front was probably unnecessary. There's a lot of debate whether or not it was a good idea to go up through Italy. Napoleon had said many years before that Italy is a boot you enter from the top. And so, of course, um, the Allies, uh, us and the Brits and the Kiwis, uh, went through the bottom. <laughs> and, just, yeah. and apparently unaware that the entire thing is just one mountain chain after another, each one defended by the Wehrmacht who were in very good soldiers. You know, they were fighting for evil, but they could fight. Uh, they were certainly better than the American soldiers as man for man in terms of training and uh, motivation. So, yeah. And then so how have you picked which battles you're going to talk about? Um, well, I'm, I'm sticking as close as I can to history. I was irritated because uh, I wanted to do Anzio, which is another just horrible screw-up of in. in inconceivable proportions where bad generalship ended up just getting a lot of people killed for no good reason. Um, but it didn't work out. I couldn't do Anzio and D-Day. So I, had, you know, just, I couldn't get everybody from here to there yeah. in yeah. time. <laughs> so, so that's pretty much, I'm doing that. And I'm, I'm hitting the high points and I'm trying, and now I'm looking forward to book three. And um, boy, again, so much stuff. But I want to I go from D-Day through uh, Buchenwald, the liberation of Buchenwald. Um, and that, that, that was the timing that worked out. So I kind of have that sketched in my head. And then there'll be some aftermath stuff. But it's D-Day, uh, the, you know, the fighting through the hedgerows, uh, the Battle of Hurtgen Forest. Yet another just completely just cock up, I think you'd say. Um, and then uh, the Battle of the Bulge, and finally the um, uh, invasion of Germany and uh, the liberation of the camps. So, a lot to look forward to. Let's change gear and talk a bit about the Gone series, mm -hmm. which lots of people here, I'm guessing, have read. Uh, phenomenally successful. What Would you like to just give people a in a nutshell, what the Gone series yeah, is about. Yeah, basically the idea was that uh, one day, for reasons that are not at all clear uh, for quite some time, uh, every single person over the age of 14 simply disappears. And they find themselves trapped in a dome, basically. A, a not transparent, a, uh, an opaque dome. 
which uh, gives them a simulation of sky in, inside. So they feel that they're in a normal environment, but it's 20 miles in diameter. Uh, it includes, it's on the Southern California coast, because why not, the weather's nice. Um, and, uh, and within that, the laws of physics have begun to change. Something is going on that's altering the way physics works. And some of the kids begin to acquire extraordinary powers. And then a whole lot of just misery and starvation and killing and just, you know, the usual stuff. <laughs> good stuff. What was your inspiration for that? Um, well, partly the TV show Lost. Um, I remember looking at that going, huh, interesting. And, of course, it, what it is essentially when you think about it, I mean, Lost is just Robinson Crusoe. And Robinson Crusoe, in its own turn, is really the expulsion from the Garden of Eden when you get down to it. It's, we got a bunch of stuff, here's our civilization, uh, everything's great. Nah, you're over here now. And everything's completely different. So in the phase, which is what we come to call the space and gone, they have to deal, uh, suddenly a bunch of 14-year-old kids have to deal with the fact that uh, they have no society, there are no adults, there are no cops, there are no teachers, there's nobody in charge. There's a hell of a lot of weapons, there's drugs, there's booze, there's not much food, and go from there. So it was kind of a sociological thing. I was um, getting into, you know, how societies form, how, you, uh, how, you, how authority exists or doesn't, uh, how people exploit power, um, and all that for six books, like 3,000 pages. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was reading them, I thought, you've taken everybody who's 15 out. 14 and below seems incredibly young yeah. to be left on their own. Yeah, I was originally going to do younger. It was funny because when I first started talking to um, you know, the Hollywood people who, uh, if you write anything that sells anything, they, you, you get to take what's called the couch tour, which means you go down to Hollywood and lots of people go, we want to be in the Michael Grant business. And then you walk out the door and go, oh, that's bullshit, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> they have no idea what the hell's going on. So uh, they had no particular notion of what the book was in many cases. Sometimes they were very well informed, but generally not. But one of the, their suggestions was, why isn't everybody older? And I said, I'll tell you exactly why. Because an 11-year-old walking down the street with a bottle of vodka in one hand and a gun in the other <laughs> is scary as hell. <laughs> but if they're 18, it's just any average night in Los Angeles. <laughs> so that was, I wanted it to be young enough so that there was this incredible sense of danger and this feeling among readers that no, they can't possibly cope with this, can they? They can't possibly cope. But you know, I mean, uh, you may know that uh, Royal Navy ships in the uh, 1800s, midshipmen, 12, 13, 14 years old, were commanding batteries of, uh, of guns in battle against the French and us. Um, so younger people are perfectly capable of doing all kinds of things, but they're not required to. Um, hopefully they won't be required to. But in that event, they have the intelligence and they have the, um, you know, they have the strength of character in some cases and in other cases not. Uh, not everybody in, this, in the phase behaves well. A lot of them don't uh, behave at all well, but a few, enough of them do to kind of create a sort of civilization. Did you know when you started where it was going to head, or did you just nah. sit out into the... No, nah, I never know. Um, it was the same thing. As always, I had a series Bible, and yeah. uh, I actually wrote that on spec, so I'd already written the book before I mm -hmm. submitted it. Usually, I'd, that's the last thing I've written on spec. On spec, by the way, just for people who don't know, 
There's two ways you can write. You can either write under contract, in other words, you've already sold the concept, so you know you're getting published, or you're writing on spec, so it's a bug on me. So you're sitting there for uh, you know, months on end typing away going, I don't know if I'm ever going to sell this, if anybody's ever going to read this. I might be, um, uh, I could be a millionaire, and then again, I could be working for free. So that's, what, that's how I wrote Gone was on, on spec. Yeah. So, but no, pl I'm sorry, no plans. No plans, even no. though it's like, Please. how many books? I, I, don't, I can't Seven. do outlines. I mean, I, I lie. I make up outlines that are fake <laughs> to keep my editors happy. Yeah. Um, but by now, they know. They just like, yeah, right. Um, you have no intention of following this, do you? And I go, no, of course not. <laughs> um, so I, just, it, it, I don't like knowing in advance what's happening. I, I like the uncertainty. I like the randomness. I, a random, random chance is helpful sometimes, and sometimes you just go along. I remember there was a point in Gone, I was like, I don't know, book four or five, and um, I, I was pretty well into it, and I just had this feeling, and this is generally how I write, there's like some thing in the back of my head that was just kind of like, you miss something, you need something, there's something not there. And I couldn't figure out what the hell it was, and I didn't have an idea, and I was driving my daughter to school one day, and I got cut off by a train, cut us off. And I just looked at the train and thought, ha, oh, train, that's it. So we wrote the train in. The train was, <laughs> was useful. So you've got to kind of keep yourself open to the possibility that life is going to give you something more interesting than you thought of. If I'd sat down, I don't know when I started, was it 2006 or 7 or 8 or whatever, when I started writing, gone. If I'd sat down at that point and planned the whole thing out, um, I would have been limited to the ideas that I was capable of having at that particular time. I would much rather have the ideas that I can have over the span of six years. I want access to all those possibilities. I, I want to see how the characters work together, how things happen, uh, and play it through that way. Do you ever get stuck or lost on a series that long? No. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't do... Um, this sounds arrogant. People think I'm being arrogant when I say it. But I don't, I don't do writer's block. I don't believe in writer's block. I think that's self-pitying nonsense from lazy writers. Um, when I was waiting tables, I didn't get waiter block. Uh, when I was cleaning people's homes, I didn't get cleaning block. Um, and then suddenly you get to writing, oh my, you're a precious little object, aren't you? You get to just sit there, I've got writer's block, I can't work today. Shut up. You know, sit down at your computer and start typing. Um, so my advice for people who do have writer's block is keep typing something. It doesn't matter what the hell it is. You're going to throw away a lot of stuff. You know, I've thrown away thousands of pages. You could half fill this room with the stuff I've thrown out. But if you just keep going, you will tend, in the end, to get somewhere. So you're going to find something. And if you just keep writing 20 pages, 30 pages, 40 pages, and then you go, boom, there it is. There it is. Okay, now let's throw out the 40 pages I wasted, but here's the idea. And in the meantime, rather than sitting around feeling sorry for myself, I put some words on paper. I've done my job. I've you know, earned my living. Yeah. 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 Just keep at it. That's my advice. You're not averse to killing off characters. Oh, God, no. I love that. Oh, do you? Um, I was going to say, is that difficult to do? But no, <laughs> obviously not. Well, um, I, my relationship to characters is that they are essentially my employees. <laughs> they work for me. It's a family business. I like them, usually. <laughs> Um, but sometimes they just really aren't performing. <laughs> and then it's, <laughs> um, you're out of the book, series, sorry. Um, 
Yeah, so, and then other times though, because I write improv basically, there's a death in the final book of uh, the Gone series, uh, which is two big ones. One of them was, I kind of had an image of an advance. The other one was um, just this character, and I'm trying to avoid spoilers, so I'm gonna be gender non-specific. This character's, this is a character who would go do that. She, she, great. <laughs> <coughs> She was brave, she was reckless, she was gonna go out one more time and do this fight, and I knew she couldn't win. As soon as she was in, I thought, you can't win, can you? It's like, no. Was that like, painful? A little bit, yeah. Um, largely because I knew, uh, uh, you know, a year later when the book came out, my Twitter feed would explode with people, go, how dare you? You've <laughs> cut my heart out with a knife. I'm like, sorry, you know, but no, you, you know, it's, it's, I'm not killing just to have a good time. Um, I'm killing them off because that's, that's the way the story has to go. Yeah. So you create a premise, whatever your premise is, you've, you, you get the audience to buy one thing, buy my premise, buy in at the beginning of the book series. But from that point on, I'm gonna walk that story forward as realistically and honestly as I know how, while still keeping it hopefully entertaining. And if that means a bunch of people get killed, hey, you can't make an omelet without breaking, <laughs> without killing characters or something. <laughs> and I think you have some good news for fans of the Gone series. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm not calling it a sequel, but it's, um, it's in the same universe. And people have been bugging me, why don't you write a sequel to Gone? Why don't you write a sequel to Gone? Because I don't write, I don't want to do that. I did 3,000 pages of that. But then I came at it from a different direction. There was this thing I wanted to do. I wanted to create a, a superhero universe which was original to me, which was not any of the tropes that everybody else has used over the years. And God knows, you know, I've given Marvel a lot of money and DC a lot of money and a lot of movies and comic books back in the day. I love what they do. I just wanted to go at it a different way. And I had a choice at that point. I thought I can either base this kind of I thought I can base this in the Animorphs universe as a continuation of that, or I can base it in the Gone universe. And when I looked at the situation, I thought I'm gonna make this a, it's the Gone universe. So it's not a sequel, it's four years later, but it's in that universe. That, that's happened, that's been a real thing. And now four years later, we're coping with it. And some of the old characters do show up. Decca, the aforementioned girl who was just a picture on my computer at one point, I kind of, it's a weird thing, but it's like, yeah, I can't do this without Decca. She's got to be there. <laughs> and are you writing it at the same time you're writing Front Lines? Yeah, well, I write um, typically two books a year. I've done three books a year, big books. I've done 14 books a year when they were small. But um, I, don't like, I don't like to take time off. I'm a horrible workaholic. Um, so, like, right now, I'm a week into this book tour, and um, I'm agitated because I'm not working. Um, my idea of a, my vacation this summer is I'm going to Buchenwald. I know. Um, <laughs> and my kids are like, we're going to Europe? Yeah, where? Oh, well, Audeul-sur-Glan, uh, which is this little town in France wiped out by the SS. And we're going to do Buchenwald. Uh, lots of fun stuff, kids. It'll be great. Um, and, I'll, and, and the whole time I'll be irritated because I'm not writing. So, yeah, I just, I, I'm like that. I have to keep working. We're going to take questions in a couple of minutes, but I just wanted to ask you a more general question mm -hmm. about the young adult 
kind of adult divide in writing, and what are your thoughts about that? Is it just a marketing thing, or is it a different kind of writing? I look, to me, the only thing that, the only difference I do for, okay, young adult just basically means that his characters are young, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I do watch the language a lot of times. That's not because I think that should be watched or that I think kids are going to be corrupted by it. I think that's nonsense. I think on the <coughs> list of things to worry about, cursing is about eight million places down from everything else you could possibly worry about. But I, I keep the language clean because some librarian somewhere is going to want to buy my book and then she's going to have the wrath of God in the, in the shape of angry parents coming down on her and I don't want to put her in that position. You know, I don't, I, I like librarians, they're my people. So, um, I keep the language clean, thank you. I used to be a librarian briefly, I was a law librarian, uh, in, among my many, many jobs. Um, so I keep the language clean and I keep, uh, if there's sex, I mostly keep it off screen. Uh, and that's in part, it's, it's less about it being YA and more about me just thinking, I have yet to see anybody write a decent sex scene that wasn't just cliche and dull and I don't know how to do it any better than anybody else does, um, and it's not particularly interesting to me. And it's kind of, to me, not the point. There's a, there is finally a sex scene in, uh, in the Gone series toward the end, and my editor goes, uh, you kind of threw that scene away, and I go, yeah, I know, I did it deliberately, because it's never been about that. You know, it's, not the, it's not whether they're going to have sex, it's the fact that they're in love. You know, love is big, sex is, eh, you know, it's fine, it's great, it's fun but it's not as important as love. That is a great note to stop, and time is up for now, so I'd like you to join me in thanking Michael Grant very, very much. Our 2016 Auckland Writers Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.